Also, to count off seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, so that you have the time of the seven Sabbaths of years, namely forty nine years. You shall then sound a ram's horn abroad on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound a horn through all your land. You shall thus set apart as holy the fiftieth year and proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his own possession of land, and each of you shall return to his family. You shall have the fiftieth year as a jubilee. You shall not sow, you shall not reap what grows of its own accord. You shall not gather in from its untrimmed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat its produce out of the field. On this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his own possession of land. If you make a sale, moreover, to your companions or buy from your friend's hand, you shall not mistreat one another. Corresponding to the number of years after the Jubilee, you shall buy from your companion. He is to sell to you according to the number of years of produce. In proportion to the extent of the years, you shall increase its price. And in proportion to the fewness of the years, you shall diminish its price. For it is the number of crops it produces that he is selling to you. So you shall not mistreat one another, but you shall fear your God. For I am Yahweh, your God. That was Leviticus 25 verses 8 to 17. And this is Theonomony where we seek to help the good man leave an inheritance to his children's children. This is Jeremy, the host of Theonomony. A lot of people talk about the Jubilee and scripture and conversations related to debt, loans, and debt forgiveness. The Jubilee is used to support the idea that scripture supports forgiving of debts, so it is often used in these discussions but has been used a lot the last several weeks in relation to student loan forgiveness and the plan that the Biden administration has stated concerning student loan relief of $10,000 and in some cases $20,000. Some Christians are being told that if we don't support forgiving this debt in the name of the Jubilee, that we are being hypocritical and picking and choosing what passages of the Old Testament we believe. And although I do find it funny that many of the people say things like that, they've gone full Andy Stanley, let's unhitch the Old Testament, except Jubilee. It's the only thing from the Old Testament that they still want around because they can use it to support popular social positions in the culture right now. But they don't want anything else in the Old Testament. In other words... The people saying that if we don't agree with their view of the Jubilee's application today, 
that we are not taking scripture literally, they often do not take very much of the Old Testament literally at all. So in this episode, we will look at the Jubilee and how it is used by some people to try to argue that forgiving student loans, or any loans for that matter, is biblical. Then we will look at the Jubilee from Scripture, with a lot from Gary North and his Leviticus Economic Commentary. And finally, we will see how the two fare together. By the way, just a disclaimer, this is not going to be a super in-depth study of the Jubilee. It just would not be possible for me to, in 20 or 30 minutes, give a super in-depth study of it. I hope to dive more in-depth with the Jubilee in the future. But for right now, we're just going to discuss some things about it that will probably be new to many of you because this would be new information to like the vast, vast majority of Americans and people in other countries today just because of how little the Jubilee is accurately talked about. But before we jump in, I just want to ask you all to, if you like the podcast, tell your friends about it and subscribe on your favorite podcast catcher and uh, just keep listening. Thank you for your support. So those who use the Jubilee to argue for forgiving loans and the redistribution of wealth would argue that in Old Testament Israel, the Jubilee forgave all loans every 50 years and redistributed all wealth. So we should follow that principle today if we are to be consistent Christians. Some may focus on the less radical forgiving all loans part, but others may focus on the more radical redistribution of wealth part claiming that Christianity means we have to redistribute all wealth every 50 years in order to properly obey God. Both of these arguments, however, are not supported by Scripture, and whether intentionally or ignorantly, the people who use those arguments misunderstand and misuse the Old Testament concept of the Jubilee. We will see how, as we look at the concept biblically, with a lot of help from Gary North. Let's start by asking what the year of Jubilee was biblically. Going back to that passage from Leviticus 25 that I read several minutes ago, the Sabbath was a special year that happened every 50 years. Sorry, the Jubilee was a special year that happened every 50 years, twice a century it would happen. Uh, The Jubilee being an extension of the Sabbath. So my apologies if that is not the last time I accidentally say Sabbath instead of Jubilee in this episode. You had the seven Sabbath years. Every seven years was a Sabbath year, just like how every seven days is a Sabbath day. So then you had those seven sevens, those 49 years. And then the 50th year was the year of Jubilee. And the Jubilee year... Any land that had been sold was returned back to its owner or the heir or heirs of the owner if he had died. Uh, By the way, this was not just any land, but it was the rural farmland, not the land within walled cities, rural farmland or land in unwalled villages, not land within walled cities. So because of this rule, the land was not really sold, but rather it was leased. When selling the land, it was not sold for its full market value the way we sell land and houses here in the United States or in really pretty much any country today. But it was sold according to the number of years until the next Jubilee 
at which point it would return to the seller. But even then, saying that the land was sold, or rather leased, and the price was based upon the number of years until the next jubilee is not the best way I could put it. Instead, I should rather say that the number of harvests until the next jubilee is how long it was. Now, since there was one harvest season per year, they have the same result. But wording it this way puts the emphasis on the fact that the value of the land when it comes to the price for the lease was related to the potential income the person purchasing it had from the number of harvests he would have until it went back to its owner. You can't just force Jubilee principles onto a nation in the middle of their normal economic activity. People buy land and houses for a price that is to keep it in that person's possession until he either sells it or dies and passes it on to his children. In Israel, the price of the land was based on the number of years, or more properly speaking, the number of harvests, though they really are the same number, but it was that number until the next jubilee when it reverted back to the owner that was what they were buying it for that number of years or harvests because of that the land as i just said should be thought of as leased rather than sold though we could use the language of buying and selling for it it is more like our concept today of leasing than it is like true selling of property to force the jubilee principle on a nation where land had not been sold with this in mind, would be to take the money from the purchasers of the land, the money taken from them being the difference between how much the land was sold for, as the thought being to keep it in perpetuity, and how much the land would be sold for if it was only leased for a certain number of years. So the Jubilee was not about money as much as it was about land. It kept land in the family line, specifically, like I said a bit ago, rural farmland and unwalled villages because homes in walled cities were not reverted at the Jubilee. It was also about a very specific part of land, the land of the promised land that God gave to Israel in their tribes and then in the families within each tribe. After God executed his wrath on the Canaanites by the conquest of Canaan that the Israelites carried out, he sectioned off the land to various families to be held by those families in perpetuity. To separate the concept of the Jubilee from the conquest of Canaan and from how God directly and personally separated out the land to the Israelites is to completely miss the Jubilee. The Israelites had their sections of land reverted in the Jubilee by divine land grant from God. Gary North writes on this in his book Leviticus, an economic commentary, and he says, What was the historical origin of this law? Judicially, it was an application of the Mosaic Sabbath, Exodus 23, 10-12. But historically, it was part of the promised spoils of war. Another quote from North in that same chapter of his book, he writes, To discuss the Jubilee laws 
without also discussing the God-mandated genocide that implemented these laws, is the equivalent of discussing the Christian ideal of heaven without discussing the cross, hell, and the lake of fire. So the plots of land to each family that were to be kept in the family line by the Jubilee was possible because they were given directly by God as part of the spoils of war from the conquest of Canaan. I don't think those making arguments from the Jubilee for the redistribution of wealth want to talk about that, though, especially the genocide of Canaan part. There is another aspect of this that helps even further show how futile it is to apply this to the modern day in the way some are telling us we should. Population growth over time would make the Jubilee nearly irrelevant. How is that so? Well, if we look at the biblical text, we can estimate that each family had at the time the land was distributed during Joshua's day, each family on average would have had about 11 acres. For the support behind this and the things I'm about to say, see the chapter on the Jubilee in Gary North's commentary on Leviticus. You can get it for free on uh, Gary North's website. I'll throw a link to there in the description of this video. Assuming a population growth rate of 3% per year, a rate that agricultural nations in the 20th century supported, Israel's population would have doubled every quarter of a century, or every 25 years. God's promised lack of miscarriages and bountiful growth, both in human children and in livestock growth, if Israel was obedient to the covenant, you know, God's promises in these things would make us expect to see at least that level of population growth, or even higher, if Israel was faithful to God. They were not, but had they been, this could have easily been the case. Just look at how much Israel grew during the several centuries in Egypt for evidence of that. So if Israel was faithful to God and saw his blessings on their population growth, which implies that population growth is a blessing, contrary to many people's ideas today, then their population would at the very least double every quarter of a century, if not faster. Remember that 11 acres per family? By the first jubilee, it is down to an average of less than 3 acres per family. 11 divided by 4 because the population would have doubled twice. 25 and then 25 again for the 50-year jubilee. By the second jubilee, it would have been down to less than an acre per family, taking that less than three and dividing it by four again. Some would have more than others, of course, because of the double share in the inheritance of the firstborn, but still, you get the idea. Now, if you are familiar with the urban farming no-till movement, you know that less than an acre can't support a family easily, but we are also talking about after only one century, and the average family is down to less than one acre. Think about another century or two later of the same rate of population growth. Now we're talking about very little land per family to support each one of them. 
the only way that the Jubilee could be helpful to Israel long term is if they were unfaithful to God and did not experience his blessings of population growth. But if Israel was this unfaithful to God, it would be doubtful that they were practicing the Jubilee anyways. Before many decades had passed, you might see many people leasing or selling until the next Jubilee their plot of land to their siblings or cousins with the plots near theirs. This way, those family members could have the greater wealth of a larger farm, and the ones leasing out their inheritance could use that money to go trade and make a business in a walled city or on the small part of their land that they did not lease out as farmland. In short, pun intended, short, the declining piece of land to each family. In short, the Jubilee would force Israelites to look for other means of work than merely agricultural, agricultural work. Israel would eventually no longer be an agrarian society because of the Jubilee if they had been faithful to God. Or as Gary North puts it, what the West has experienced since the late 18th century is what God had in mind for Israel from the time of the conquest, namely rapid growth of population, cities, specialization, manufacturing, trade, emigration, and per capita wealth. But the Jubilee also had another function, to keep Israel separate from Gentiles who lived in Israel, even those who became converts to Judaism. Unless that Gentile was adopted by a Jewish family, which includes marriage for females as she married a Jewish man, such as Ruth with Boaz, they had no way of acquiring the rural farmland in perpetuity. They could lease it out until the next jubilee, or live on it by selling themselves into slavery to a Jewish landowner, but they could never own it themselves in perpetuity unless they were adopted by a Jewish family. This made a distinction between Israelite citizens and descendants of the original settlers of the Promised Land and those who came in later. The latter were relegated to the walled cities where they could still make a good living for themselves in business, but they were not the same as the historic Israelite families. And though these foreigners might still gain power in those cities, Israelites would eventually begin moving in to them as their inheritance land grew smaller and smaller with each generation. As long as those Israelites worked hard in the cities, which they would have learned how to do so on the family farms, the Gentiles could never grow too much of a foothold in Jewish cities, which would help keep the cities from becoming havens of paganism as we see in the United States today in too many cases. But the declining inheritance land each generation would also push Israelites to move outside of the promised land, where they would be evangelists to the nations around Israel. Thus, the Jubilee also had some missionary implications. If Israel had been faithful to God, that if being a big word, despite how few letters it is, because we know Israel never was faithful to God for very long before going off after idols once again, but if Israel had been faithful to God, here, you know, we're talking about how things were 
supposed to be rather than how they were because we should speak about God's law as it should be, as it ideally is, not as it has been ignored or abused in the past, especially when we try to apply it today or keep it from being misapplied today. If Israel had been faithful to God, the Jubilee would have had these missionary implications as they were finding their land too small in the promised land and going out into the nations around them and doing business there and being evangelists and missionaries there. Thus, the Jubilee, in a way, was a precursor to New Testament evangelism. So seeing all of that, let's look at some more Gary North quotes from his Leviticus commentary that relates to this discussion. He writes, The Jubilee law was in no sense a law mandating the state-enforced equalization of wealth. Contrary to that peculiar late 20th century theology known as liberation theology, socialism for evangelical Christians. The fundamental economic principle of the Jubilee laws was that those outside of the covenants, civil, familial, and ecclesiastical, should be kept economically and numerically subordinate to those inside the covenants. The primary economic concern of the Jubilee Laws was not the equalization of property or even the equal equality of opportunity. It was, on the contrary, the establishment of the principle of inequality of opportunity for those outside the covenant. The Jubilee Inheritance Law had little or nothing to do with assuring economic equality, except in times of national covenantal cursing, stagnant population. The law had everything to do with the mandating of political and cultural inequality, giving a permanent head start to heirs of the conquest over immigrants, even those immigrants who became members of the covenant through circumcision, but not members of land-inheriting families. Those were all various quotes from Gary North. So in light of all of this we've seen thus far, we can't apply the Jubilee today. Why? We did not conquer the land we live on by direct command of God, and the land was not distributed among families directly by God. We do not have the divine right to various parcels of land for various families. Any argument we can make for the Jubilee still being in effect would only apply to Israel, and even that is lost after the Jewish family records were destroyed in AD 70. In short, the Jubilee no longer applies. It was only ever to apply to specific parcels of land for specific families in Israel. We no longer know how the land was split up, nor to whom it should belong. And with population growth, even if we knew the former two, each family would probably have like two square feet of land to call their own. If we tried to apply the Jubilee in America today, how would we even do so? Are the current owners of land the ones who will hold it in perpetuity? Or ones at a specific year? If that's the case, and 
since the Jubilee happened every 50 years, would we go with whoever owned each piece of land in 2000? Or should we go back further to 1950 or 1900 or even further back than that? Should we go with 1800, the first even 50-year calendar year in the United States history? Like, when would we start with this? So to bring this subject back around to debt forgiveness, especially student loan forgiveness, the Jubilee does not apply at all. Unless you're an Israelite living two or 3,000 years ago, you have no claim on the Jubilee. The Jubilee was about restoring land to its historic family owners as an extension of the Sabbath laws and the conquest of Canaan. It had all kinds of implications for citizenship status within Israel, the promotion of different types of business and sources of income besides farming in ancient Israel, and even leasing practices, all of which we can learn from today, but the land redistribution of the Jubilee is not directly applicable today in any way. So there is no way we can apply the Jubilee to debt forgiveness today because debt forgiveness is in no way connected to the Jubilee with its you know, things about land and all of the other implications I just listed and the implications I didn't list because there are a lot of implications of the Jubilee. And to the argument for wealth redistribution, the Jubilee did not redistribute, redistribute all forms of wealth, but only land. And it didn't distribute it evenly among everyone in Israel at the time but only among those who had a right to the land by being descendants of the original inhabitants of the promised land after the conquest under Joshua. <clears throat> and even among them, the distribution wasn't equal. The oldest child received twice the inheritance as his siblings. So if you were in a long line of being the oldest son, your parcel of land was much larger than that of most others around you. And this returning of land at the Jubilee only applied to those who let out their land since the last Jubilee. Everyone else had possession of it the entire time, so there was nothing to return to because they never lost it. All that to say, the Jubilee doesn't support any kind of socialist idea today. Now, I know that wasn't a super in-depth description of the Jubilee, but like I said near the beginning, it was much deeper than most today are. Partially because so few talk about it, at least from a biblical perspective. So I hope you learned something and that if I return to the Jubilee again in the future to dive deeper into it and help us understand it better, you'll listen to and enjoy that episode or those episodes. So that was this week's episode of Theonomony. As we go, I want to remind everyone that the law of the Lord is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. So go apply that law in light of the gospel of Christ's atoning death and resurrection to every area of life. Grace and peace, friends. Satisfies me, your law is sweet, oh you say.